I want you all to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to continue our story, our, our series on connecting with God through worship. And you may be aware of this already, but there are at least as many preacher jokes as there are lawyer jokes. And some of them are pretty good. I, I'm going to tell you one of my favorites now, and you can judge for yourself whether it's good or not. You know, humor's in the eye of the beholder or the ear of the beholder. But uh, the way this one goes, there was a, a certain pastor who one day on a Monday morning came into his office and sat down with his secretary and said, listen, I've been thinking, people around here are way too informal with me. They don't seem to appreciate the, the education that I have, especially the doctorate that was conferred upon me by my alma mater. It's an honor, an honor from my, the place I went to school. And so I think from now on, I want to insist that everybody call me Dr. Jones. I'm not Brother Jones. I'm not preacher. I'm not, I'm not pastor. I'm Dr. Jones. And you're the first line of defense. So I want you to make sure that anybody who comes to see me calls me Dr. Jones. She said, uh, and, you know, this, this secretary was a very dutiful and humble and servant-hearted woman. She had a great respect for her pastor, the role of the pastor. And so she said, yes, sir, uh, brother, I mean, Dr. Jones, we'll do, we'll do that. And so the first day of this new regime was going pretty well. People raised their eyebrows a little bit, but they followed along. And then late in the afternoon, a guy comes walking in with this huge cowboy hat on, alligator skin boots, western shirt, Walks in and, and the secretary says, may I help you? He says, yes, ma'am. Can I see the head hog at the trough? She said, excuse me? He said, I'm here to see the head hog at the trough. She said, sir, I, I, I assume you're talking about our pastor. And if so, I, I must inform you that um, his name is Dr. Jones. He's an eminent man of God. He's been honored by his alma mater with this title. And I must insist that you call him that. In fact, I won't let you go to see him unless I know that you're going to call him by the name that he deserves to be called by. And he said, well, dang, ma'am, that's a shame because I hit it big in the oil patch today. And when I got that check, the first thing I said to the Lord was, Lord, I'm going to tithe off this to the closest church to this place. And but, you know, if I can't see the head hog at the trough, I'll just take my six figure check back up to the panhandle to my little old church up there, if that's all right with you. She looked at him and then she pushed the intercom button. She said, hey, piggy boy, get your curly tail out here. <laughs> So, pretty good? <laughs> See, what's, what's funny about that is the stereotype that so many people have, so many of us have, that pastors and churches care inordinately about money, that, uh, that that's all they want to talk about. In fact, some of you right now are going, I had to show up on the Sunday, they talk about money. And there's truth to that stereotype. Let's be honest, televangelists don't help us out in this manner. But local churches, it takes money to do ministry. Don did a great job of, of explaining that and, and, and explaining our financial position, so I won't dwell on that, except to say this, except to say this, I'm not worried. I'm not afraid. I'm not scared. I'm not anxious because we serve the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he will provide. He will provide for this church. And, and I will say this, if we're not obedient to give toward the vision that God has for this church, he'll find another church through which to do his work. Either way, God's going to be glorified. So I'm not worried. 
So I'm not up here today to talk about we need this and we need that. What I want to talk about is how important it is that we connect with God. That's what we've been doing in this, throughout this series. We've talked about singing praise to God on Sunday mornings. We've talked about knowing Him through the Word of God and meditating upon it daily. Last week we talked about worshiping Him through your work. And I hope, I hope if you were here last week that you were able to have a very different kind of work week than usual as you were able to remember every day, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. But today I want to talk about another form of worship, and that is worship through giving. The kind of connection with God that happens when we give toward His work of our own resources. And just full disclosure, I don't know who gives what. Like Don said, I don't know and I don't want to know, neither do any of the other ministers. So if my eye rests on you while I'm preaching, it's pure coincidence. Maybe I just like the way you look, but uh, don't read anything into that. What I do know is that a lot of Christians are missing out on the joy that can be theirs with a generous lifestyle. I think a lack of generosity is what's stopping a lot of Christians from experiencing the abundant life that God had planned for us. And I'll get in more into that in a moment. But before we get into 1 Corinthians 8, let me give you some background. Paul wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians, to a church in a place called Corinth, a little Greek city long ago. Um, and the church there had a lot of issues. This is not the place I would have wanted to be pastor. Paul is addressing these issues. One of the issues is what he's talking about in, in chapters 8 and 9. There had been a collection that Paul had been taking up for the, for the Christians in Jerusalem. You see, there had been a series of famines in the Jerusalem region in Israel, and the, the people there were starving. And Christians had it especially bad because if you were a Christian in Jerusalem, that meant you were Jewish by blood, but you had followed a, a Messiah who'd been rejected by the Jews. And so many of those people had been disowned by their families. They didn't have those social safety nets that most people have when they get into hard times. Some of them couldn't get work because they were ostracized for their faith. Paul was a Jew, not living in Jerusalem, but a, a, very, a very passionate Jewish believer in Jesus. And his vision, his dream, his heartbeat was that someday God's going to make Jew and Gentile into one. He's going to bring two dis disparate people who used to hate each other and make them one family in Christ. And all the world will see what nobody else in the world could do. No government agency, no army, no social organization could, could bring different races together and make them one. But God's going to do it. And, and so that was his motive in collecting this money. He thought, if these Jerusalem Christians get this life-saving money from these Gentile believers, it's going to bind them together. And the situation in Corinth was the Corinthian Christians had said, yeah, we'll contribute, but then they never had given. They'd pledged to give, but they'd never taken up a collection. So Paul is writing in part 2 Corinthians to say, hey, it's time for you to fulfill your promise. But as we read, I want you to notice this. Paul does not berate them. He does not slam them. He could have he, he was the one who founded this church. He had a, a certain stake in this congregation. He could have said, you people are letting me down. He could have heaped guilt upon them. He could have talked at length about the needs in Jerusalem and made them feel heartbroken for the, those people. But instead, notice what he does. He gives them reasons to be generous. Now, I can think of all kinds of reasons not to give. I can think of all kinds of reasons not to be generous Many of you would say, hey, every dollar that I have is accounted for. At the end of a pay period, I don't have anything left over. 
Some of you would say, I'm just now trying to crawl my way out of debt. I've got a kid in school. I've got several kids in school, and that's expensive. I've got medical bills. I've got, I've got a, a house that's falling apart, and I want to get my family into a better place. And you're telling me I need to give some of it away? There are all kinds of reasons not to give. Paul's going to give us some reasons to give. And let's go through these quickly, starting with the first one in chapter 8. He says the first reason to give is the example of others. Just the example of others should, should inspire us. Chapter 8, verse 1 begins this way. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. By the way, Macedonia, that would be Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. If you know the book of Acts, you're familiar with those cities. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So Paul is saying, not, not in a sense of casting guilt, but saying, hey, look what your brothers and sisters in these other cities have done. Look how great they've been. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, you're the beneficiary of their generosity. You're able to know that your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem have been taken care of and you didn't lift a finger. So you're, you should be thankful to these other people who've given so generously. And we all ought to know what that feels like. Even if you're the most self-made person in this room, even if you can honestly say, I came from the bottom and now I'm on top and I did it all myself, you, you really didn't. All of us are the recipients of somebody's generosity. Me, myself, right here standing in this pulpit, I didn't give a dime for the building of these beautiful buildings for the construction of this incredible campus. I'm the beneficiary of the generosity of dozens, maybe hundreds of people. Some of them are in heaven, some of them are still here. And so are many of you who've come since these buildings were constructed. Even if that doesn't resonate with you, think about this. When you were growing up, your parents bathed you and clothed you and fed you and, and gave you an education and took care of your basic needs. Whatever else they might have done right or wrong, you're alive today because of their generosity. And they probably haven't presented you with a bill for that stuff. We have an opportunity, when others have been generous, we have the opportunity to match that generosity and say, okay, I'm going to pay it forward. Just like someone was generous to me, I'll be generous too. And by the way, and by the way, it is often said these days in churches that once the greatest generation is gone, the greatest generation is those who were born before World War II, many in this very church, some in this very room, once the greatest generation is gone, churches are in trouble because that generation is the faithful one. They, they gave generously. They served tirelessly. They are devoted to their churches. And once they're gone, those millennials and those other, you know, those Generation X, they don't know how to give, and so churches are going to fall apart. And churches are going to have to uh, rent out their buildings or sell off their buildings or, or, or the pastors aren't going to be able to do their work full time. And, and I know a lot of people who are really concerned about that i got to tell you, I'm not. Because I believe that God is faithful and God's going to raise up men and women from every generation, from my generation, Generation X, as woebegone as we are, as, as lacking in achievement as my, as my generation is. God's going to raise up men and women from, the, from us and from the millennial generation and from whatever that next one is called, okay? They, they want to resist titles. But God's going to raise up men and women 
who are going to say, it's up to me. It's up to me to give to God everything that I can. And God is going to do his work. Second reason, second reason we should be generous, because generosity is part of godly character. Verse 7, Paul writes, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in complete earnestness, and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So notice what Paul's doing here. If it wasn't Paul, if it was just some ordinary person, you'd think, oh, he's buttering them up. But he's not. He's not flattering them. He's simply stating facts. You Corinthians excel in a lot of things. You've got a lot of good things about you. You've got strong faith. You, you, you speak well. You've got a lot of knowledge of the Word of God. You, you have a strong love for each other and for God. But here's what you're lacking. You're not generous people. And you need to address that because you're lacking something in your character for God. And see, the reason why I think that resonates with us is we all have a tendency to rationalize our shortcomings by pointing to the things we do well. And we say, well, I'm not good at this, but I'm really good at this over here, so it sort of makes up for it, right? As an example, I've known Christians basically all my life. In every phase of life, I've come across Christians who would say, I'm not very compassionate, I'm not very sympathetic, I'm not very kind-hearted, but I am bold, and God loves boldness, right? And in my experience... The people who say that, what they're really saying is, I'm a jerk. And and, and I want to spiritualize my jerkiness by saying, I don't need to change. Yes, God loves boldness, but humble boldness is what he's looking for. Kind boldness is what he's calling for. In the same way, a lot of us, if we were honest, we would have to say, I'm just not a very generous person. I tend to be stingy with my own resources, but... I like to pray, I'm good at that, and, and I'm, I'm very willing to volunteer, so it sort of makes up for it. I mean, those people over there who are good at giving, they can give, and I'll do my thing over here. But you understand what you're saying when you say that. You're like a dad who says, I'm really not good at encouraging my children. I'm really not warm toward them or telling them I love them, but I am a stern disciplinarian. So they get their affection from their mom and their discipline from me. That doesn't work, guys. As a dad, you've got to be both. You've got to be a a firm disciplinarian and a loving father. That's what your kids need from you. In the same way, we as God's people can't settle and say, well, I'm just not generous. And by the way, and by the way, a lot of people will, will use this excuse. They'll say, hey, God loves a cheerful giver, and I'm not cheerful when I give, so I guess God doesn't really want my money anyway. You know, if I was one of those bold people, I'd say that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I'm not, but that's what I would say if I was. Notice that Paul does say in chapter 9, we're not going to read it, but in chapter 9, he does say God loves a cheerful giver. That's after a chapter and a half of him telling them why they should be generous. He doesn't say, by the way, God loves a cheerful giver, so if you're not one of those generous people by nature, this isn't really for you. This is for other people. No, he doesn't say that at all. What he's saying is, here's the need. God has placed it on your heart. Give to it generously. And if you're not cheerful about it, then ask God to change your heart. But give either way. Because the people in Jerusalem need the the money of grumpy people just as much as they need the money of cheerful people. Third thing, third reason we should give, because God multiplies our gifts. God does this amazing thing and multiplies what we give. Look at uh, verses 11 and 12. 
Now finish the work. What is he saying there? You promised to give, now give. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And you can kind of hear what Paul is responding to there. We can imagine that the Corinthian Christians had said to Paul, listen, I know we haven't followed through on our promise, but the truth is we don't have much money, and if we took up a collection, it wouldn't amount to anything, so we might as well not even do it because we just don't have that much to contribute. And Paul is saying it's not about how much you can give. Whatever you give, God's going to be pleased with it. God's not going to look at it and say, is that all? And in fact, God is going to take what you give and he's going to make it acceptable. He's going to make it enough. There's a lot of stories in the scriptures about this, by the way. Probably the most famous, and here's, here's your trivia for the day, if you want to stump your friends. What's the only miracle in the Bible besides the resurrection that is in all four Gospels? The feeding of the 5,000. Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children. Could have been at over 15,000 people, all told, with five loaves and two fish. Fantastic miracle. It's in all, five, all four Gospels. But where'd the five loaves and two fish from, come from? Only one of the Gospels tells us, and that's John. John tells us it comes from a little boy. A little boy brought five loaves and two fish to Jesus' talk. Now, it doesn't tell us who the boy was, what his name was, what he was doing with this food when nobody else thought to bring food. All it tells us is that he gave it, and it was enough because God is amazing. There's a story in your At First Guide, by the way. Every week, there's a prayer emphasis for you on the left-hand side, and I hope you read it every week, take it home, and pray over it throughout the week. This week, there's a story in there before you get the prayer emphasis about a guy who worked at Dairy Queen in a little town in Minnesota, 19-year-old guy who saw a blind man open his wallet and a $20 bill fell out. And of course, being blind, he didn't know it. And this Dairy Queen employee sees that and sees this woman come along and pick up the 20 and stick it in her pocket and walk away. And so he goes and confronts the woman and says, hey, you need to give that to the man who just dropped it. And she said, no, 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 it's mine, it's not his. And so this kid didn't know what else to do so instead of doing all, going all kung fu on this woman, he pulls out his wallet and hands $20 of his own money to the blind man. And one of the customers in Dairy Queen saw that, posted something about it on, on Facebook. It went viral. This guy ends up on the nightly news, nationwide publicity. Warren Buffett, of all people, invites him to the annual Dairy Queen shareholders convention so he can tell his story. And his one simple act of $20 generosity inspires millions of people. See how God can multiply our generosity. And so I don't know what you have or what you're able to give. I don't want to know that's between you and the Lord. What I do know is this. Somewhere in a third world nation, there's a child growing up in a village that has never heard the name of Jesus. And your gift, small though it may be, could put a mission agency over the top to be able to send a church planner to that village and reach that child with the gospel. Somewhere in our community, there's a young man, a young woman, a teenager who's considering suicide, and your gift could be exactly what it takes for our youth ministry to do some new initiative that reaches that young person. Not only saves his or her life, but saves their soul. Somewhere in our city, there's a family that doesn't speak English, like so many in our community, and your gift could enable our ESL ministry to expand 
and reach that family. And not only give them life skills so they can make a living, but bring them to faith in Christ. Change their eternity forever. And can you imagine meeting those people someday in heaven? Never having met most of them in this life, but knowing, finding out through the eyes of God that your gift is responsible for that family, for that teenager, for that child. Coming to know Christ. God multiplies our gifts. Don't scoff. He can do it. He will do it. Number four, generous people are blessed people. If you want a reason to give, Paul gives it to us. In verse 13, he says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Now, that's common sense, really. You don't need to believe in God at all to believe what Paul just said. Basically, what he said was, if you're generous to people when they're in trouble, later on when you're in trouble, they'll be generous back to you. It's just smart. But here's what takes faith. In chapter 9, in chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, he says this, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Basically, what Paul's saying there is, you can't outgive God. The more generous you are, the more blessed you will be. And he's right. I have known a lot of generous people in my life. Some of them had more money than I do. Some of them had less money than I do. I've never met a generous person who didn't have enough. I've never met a generous person who regretted their generosity. They were always the best kind of wealthy. Now, this is a teaching that is often misused. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Proverbs 19.17 Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay his deed. And I won't post it up there, but Jesus famously said to his disciples, whatever you give over to the kingdom of God, you get back hundredfold. And there are preachers that have twisted those words and made it sound like, well, if you give $100 to my ministry, it'll come back $10,000 to you. You'll get, just get a mysterious check for $10,000. You just try it. You just try it. And that's not what the Bible is saying. God's plan is not a way to get rich by the standards of this world. If it was, then why were Jesus and Paul and the other apostles so poor in this life? They were poor by our reckoning, but by the reckoning of heaven, they were wealthy beyond all measure. Money was never a problem. Money was never an issue. They had what they needed, and they had joy on top of it. So why do, what does Paul mean when he says, you will be made rich in every way? Notice what it says next, so that you can be generous. Whatever God wants you to give away, that's what He'll provide you with. If it's money, He'll provide you with more money than you ever needed, than you ever dreamed of. If it's, if it's emotional support to somebody else, if it's physical help, if it's skills, if it's time, He will give you what you need to serve Him in the way you should. But you begin by giving. You trust Him first by giving. And this is basically what he says very famously through Malachi. Malachi 3.10 says it this way, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Again, every generous person I've ever known would say, I've got more than enough. I am blessed. 
I've never met a greedy, generous person. I've never met a generous person who was stuck in self-pity. Every generous person I know is full of joy and contentment, whether they've got more than me or less than me in terms of financial resources. Basically, let me just put it to you this way. You've probably tried keeping it all to yourself. Most of us have at one point or another. How has that worked out for you? Has it made you happier? Has it brought you peace? Has it blessed your children if you have any? Why not try it God's way and just see what happens? Finally, number five, this is the best reason to be generous. Verse nine says, generosity is following Christ. Generosity is following Christ. This is not the last thing Paul says, but I put it last because this is the, this is the keystone, the capstone to this whole teaching. Verse nine For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And this is the good news. You know, I'm not going to let you leave without hearing the good news. The good news is this. God's teaching on generosity and stewardship is not, boy, you better give. You better give till it hurts, otherwise I'm not going to accept you. You've got to buy your way into the kingdom. So, so the more you give, the more you will be accepted. The more you give, the more I will love you. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, the message of the Bible is, it's not about what you give, it's about what I gave. Isn't that fantastic? It's about, it's about a God who had everything and gave it up so that he had nothing. So that we could have everything. That's our destiny. That's our future. And whether you're driving a Cadillac now or whether you don't have a car right now, you've got a future in glory that is fantastic. And you've got blessing right now because you're already a part of His family. And here's the thing. That's true if you're a child of God. That's true whether you give one red cent or not. God's not going to love you any more if you're generous than if you're stingy. If you're His child, He's going to love you. But we don't have to give. We're not compelled to give. We're not forced to give. We don't have to earn our way into heaven. So why be generous? Because Jesus was. And because the, the, the dream of our hearts is to be like Him. Once you're saved, once you're in His family, you look up to Him, your, your older brother, and you say, I want to be just like Him. And He was so generous. He gave it all. I want to be just like Him so the world can see in me what I saw in Him so they through me can come to know Him and they can experience what I've experienced. That's the best reason to be generous. Because when you're generous, you're following Him. When you're stingy, you're not. Just think about this for a moment. I don't know what your situation is and it's none of my business, but what would it look like in your life if you took a step toward that kind of generosity what would it look like, practically speaking? What's holding you back from taking that step? 